what a special time of, it, of the year it is for these little ones. I know they're all excited, and uh, I'm thinking about our youngest, Salem. Many of you know our little year-and-a-half-year-old uh, blonde-haired thing who toddles around here. Salem, uh, this is not her first Christmas. She was born in June, uh, a year and a half ago, but this is really the first Christmas where she's beginning to put things together. Uh, and for Salem, this is an absolutely magical time. Uh, she's uh, looking at the tree every morning when I plug it back in, and it's just electrified in her eyes. She's, she's enamored with the ornaments. Uh, we keep the, uh, the ones that she can chew on lower down on those, those boughs of the tree. Uh, some of you know that trick. Um, but uh, as, as amazing as it is for me as a father to watch my little girl just be thrilled with all of the glitter and the tinsel and the sparkle that is the Christmas season, I know that that's actually not the experience here today for most of us. Most of us here have been around the calendar a time or two, or three. Most of us here have sung these same songs over and over and over again on repeat. Most of us are very familiar with the twinkling lights, and most of us have heard all these Christmas texts preached already. Even though we're not numb to the importance of this Christmas season and all that it represents, the reality is for many of us that Christmas sometimes loses its luster due to the frequency with which we've experienced it. The uh, ever-quotable Dale Ralph Davis says this about the Christmas season. He says, familiarity tends to deaden appreciation. That's true about a lot of things, isn't it? Familiarity tends to deaden our appreciation. So I was wrestling through my own familiarity with the Advent season, uh, and as I was doing so, I uh, woke up way too early in the morning uh, for what we affectionately, affectionately call the men's crack of dawn Bible study. If you know, you know. Uh, by the way, a shameless plug, we, are, uh, we meet the men at Tuesday morning at 5.30 a.m. Uh, for all who are available to, to study the Bible and pray together, and there's uh, food provided and something warm with caffeine in it. Um, and uh, and we, we appreciate that time together. Every, every Tuesday, we're working through the book of Philippians together, and uh, we are in one of my favorite chapters, Philippians chapter 3 which begins this way. This was like a, a reminder of a reminder to me. Uh, as I'm framing Christmas and seeking for the Lord to keep it fresh in my heart, uh, I, I stumbled across this verse on a sleepy Tuesday morning. Philippians 3.1. Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then he says, To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. And is safe for you. The second part really got my attention. In a all too familiar Christmas season, I began to meditate on that. To, to write the same things to you, Paul says, it's no problem for me. It's no trouble for me to repeat myself. You know that's true for me as well, right? <laughs> Poor Lindsay. And not only is repetition, gospel-centered repetition, repetition of God's truth, no trouble 
for the bearer of that truth. It's also safe for those who hear it. So, Friendship Community Church, let us not be numb to the importance of reminders this Christmas season. The passage we're about to preach through today is a passage that you have heard preached before. We've covered it already, last year, in fact, and that's okay. The goal of our worship is not novelty. The goal of our worship is not even information, new information. The goal of our worship is Christ magnified. And sometimes what we need, church, is not some brand new shiny fact about Christmas. Sometimes what we need is to dust off these old truths that we need to grow down deeper into. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you and for me too. So with that truth before us, let's go to a very familiar passage at Christmas time, the passage of Matthew's gospel in the second chapter. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. If you're using our church Bible and the seatbacks in front of you, that's found on page 757, so you can fly your way there. 757, Matthew 2, beginning in verse 1. This is God's Word. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go, search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country another way. This is God's word, and it is true and eternally valuable. Today, Friendship Community Church, we are simply going to consider the three profiles of the people or the groups of people that we encounter here in this Christmas passage. The three people or groups and their response to the Christmas message, or perhaps more specifically, to the king of the Christmas message. First, we'll see Herod, 
who sees Jesus as a threat to his authority. Then we'll see the chief priests and the scribes who have a knowledge of the truth, but no real submission to it. And finally, we'll see the wise men who fall down, who have the right posture. They prostrate themselves and and worship at the feet of this newborn king. So look with me, if you would, back at verse 1. Matthew tells us that these events took place in the days of Herod the king, which honestly can be a bit hard to keep straight. Some of us have Herods as a big jumbled mess in our brains because there are, in fact, multiple Herods, even in the Gospels and certainly in the royal line here. The Herod spoken of in this account here in Matthew 2 is Herod I, or the one who came to be known as Herod the Great. And they called him great for a reason. This guy was legit as a ruler. He was gifted. He was considered a master builder, uh, building up many cities and incredible monuments, including restoring the beautiful and much improved, might I add, second temple in Jerusalem. Remember the one as Jesus was walking through with his disciples and they're like country bumpkins kind of looking up saying, wow, Jesus, take a look at this thing. That was the temple that Herod had built. This Herod, Herod the Great. Herod the Great was also a ruler who reigned over his kingdom with a firm and even ruthless grip, even murdering his wife, one of them, and several of his sons and relatives because he saw them as a threat to his power and his rule. Matter of fact, Caesar Augustus, you know, the, the emperor at, at the time in Rome, was reported to have said this about Herod. He said, It's better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Now, that's meant to be a dig, and we're like, What is going on here? Uh, apparently, in the original language, the word for pig and the word for son, son sound relatively similar. And so, uh, this is basically Caesar busting Herod's chops in a winsome way for being so ruthless of a ruler. The point isn't hard to see, of course. Much of Herod's heavy-handedness, particularly later on in his rule, came from a paranoia, a rising paranoia in his life about losing his throne. What's more, and this is key, this is, this is helpful, I think, for us in understanding this passage and really sinking it down, its truths into our, into our hearts. It was commonly thought at this time that heavenly signs, comets, falling stars, the movement of great celestial bodies, these heavenly signs were predictions of the fall and the rising of rulers. So you put it together and you realize that many kings would be fearful of these omens in the skies. It makes sense then that this wise men, these wise men's inquiry about this newborn king of the Jews would have produced some angst within great Herod's life. And not just Herod, look at verse 3. Not only was he troubled, who else was troubled? Yeah. All of Jerusalem with him was troubled. Can you imagine? You got a reputation for like 
offing your family members because they're too much of a threat to your reign. Now we have an open claim for kingship going on here. You can imagine the entire city is like, oh, what's he going to do, right? Something's about to go down. Someone's claiming king, and Herod's not happy. This is a valid concern, by the way. If you were to continue reading into verse 16 here of Matthew chapter 2, you should be horrified to find that when Herod is not able to, to identify this Christ child and his whereabouts, the, uh, the Lord himself sends an angel to warn the, uh, the wise men, and they, uh, they give Herod the, the slip. Herod, in his wrath and his zeal to eliminate any potential threat to his reign, has all the male children in Bethlehem and the surrounding region killed who are two years old or younger. Can you imagine? The enemy, by the way, is always out to eliminate God's chosen one. Before God raised up, excuse me, a deliverer from Egypt to, to free his people from the bondage of their Egyptian overlords, what was going on? The enemy was seeking to eliminate God's chosen Savior. And before the capital S Savior comes, the enemy is about the same wicked scheme. So, what's Herod's response to this newborn king? Well, it's plain as the nose on your face, Herod's response is to see this Christ child as a threat to his kingdom, to his throne, to his authority. And this is, friends, if we would just press the pause button for a minute on Matthew 2 and look around, this is, I'll note, still a very common response at Christmas. To Jesus, not just at Christmas. This is a, a common response to Jesus in general. What do you mean, Zeb? Well, what I mean is seeing Jesus and his claims and his rulership as a personal affront, as a threat to our authority, or perhaps better stated, to our way of living life the way we want. After all, if he is Lord, if Jesus is Lord, if he sits on the throne, by the way, that's what Lord means. It means the sovereign, the, the, the ruler, the one who calls the shots. If he's sovereign and sitting on the throne, that means you can't, right? It means we, we can't. It's that job's taken. And although we don't always have these words... I think we express, many folks today express, still in 2023, the sentiments of the old poet William Ernest Henley. Some of you may have heard these words he wrote many years ago in the poem Invictus. The famous last line of that poem reads like this, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Man, we love that stuff, don't we? I'm the master of me. Ain't nobody going to tell me what to do or what to be or who to love or what to pursue. 
I'm in charge of me. I'm the captain of my own fate. I am the master of my soul. There's something kind of wells up within us. Yeah. Inspiring. Goosebumps. They made movies out of this stuff. This was the poem that Nelson Mandela rallied behind in prison for those 27 years. I'm the master of me. You're not going to get me down. Now, although that might tug at your heartstrings a little bit, there's just one little thing wrong with that, and that's this. That's the fact that there's already a king on the throne who has claimed authority over all of life and living. Herod balked at the idea of another king who would be a threat to his own reign and authority, and in a much lesser way, without the crowns and the thrones. I think that's our problem too sometimes. Jesus can be a cute little figurine in a nativity scene. Jesus can be the subject of some Christmas tiny songs, but he's not Lord. That's my job. No. The, the scriptures are clear. He has come to reign as king, and he will, as we have sung this morning, reign forevermore. There's not a, not a cell, not a nano cell over which he does not have authority i just want to remind you today as we pursue christ in a familiar season that we can just so so cozily coast through jesus is lord over everything you got if he's if he's your savior You've been bought by his blood. You you don't own your stuff. You don't own your soul. You've been bought with a price. Let us look at Herod's, Herod's example of how to respond to Christmas and the king of Christmas and shrink back in horror and say, Lord, please guard me from wanting to steal your throne. Second response, I think, to to this Christmas news comes from a, a different group that we see, these chief priests and scribes a little later in the passage. They were at Herod's beck and call, and, and so he, he gathers them in when he receives this news from the Magi about the, the, the newborn king, and, and he begins to, to grill them, to ask them questions. This group, these chief priests and scribes, represent a different response to Jesus albeit another negative one. These are those who have a knowledge of the truth, but no submission to it. Think about it. When Herod asks in verse 4, where's the Christ child supposed to be born? By the way, just a little stop. The, the Magi said, where's the king? But when Herod asks the experts, <laughs> He doesn't ask them where the king is. He asks them where who is? The Christ. He knew enough about the people that he was governing to know that this promised child was no mere ruler. 
He knew that the promise, that, that, that the hope that we were all yearning for, this is the Advent yearning, was for the Messiah to come. And so he gathers the religious experts and says, all right, guys, you know your Bibles. Where's this baby supposed to be born? And note that these chief priests and scribes actually have the answer, don't they? That was an easy one for them. They've got the perfect answer. The prophet Micah had literally spelled it out centuries before. Jim just read it for us a moment ago, Micah 5.2. He said, hey, check. We got that. We got that fact down. Bethlehem, that's where the Messiah is supposed to come from. Micah told us so centuries ago. Now think about it. They had just heard heard all of this swirling, all of Jerusalem is sort of up and holding their bated breath. There's an open claim to kingship. Herod is on the prowl and they know it. There are questions about the Messiah and his coming. These experts know all the right answers. What do they do with all the right answers? What do they do with this correct theology? Of Christmas. Well, what they don't do is race down to Bethlehem, shepherd style, to go see what's happening, to go examine whether this could indeed be the Christ. None of that. What do they do? Well, they. We don't know. <laughs> Scripture's kind of silent. And although we shouldn't try to squeeze too much out of it, I think the silence here is really deafening. The Messiah, that's the question. The one that we've been waiting for. And these chief priests and these scribes are able to sit back and say, okay, we know all about that, but their knowledge doesn't inform their behavior. It certainly doesn't inform their worship here. By the way, this is, this is kind of too good to share. It's not one of the major points, but I think it's a, it's a beautiful little thing that the Lord has done they, they say the, the Christ child is supposed to be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. You know what Bethlehem means? Literally translated, the, 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 the place named Bethlehem means house of bread. It's beautiful. I like to go to any house with bread in it. <laughs> house of bread. You say, yeah, we know that. House of bread. Now think about the significance of the Christ coming up coming out of the house of bread. Just take his word for it. Remember when Jesus is walking in his earthly life and ministry and he's teaching and he says in John chapter 6, I think we've got it up here on the screen for you, John 6, 48 to 51, I am the bread of life. Whoa, the bread of life? Your fathers, speaking of bread, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This, me, I am the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. What's Jesus saying? I'm the new manna. Jesus is saying, I am the bread that came down from heaven. It's me. The manna was about me. 
I'm the prophesied one to come from the house of bread. And he does. Doesn't he? The bread of life comes out of the house of bread, Bethlehem. Just a, just a beautiful thing. God is so purposeful, isn't he, in all that he does? Well, these chief priests and these scribes, these experts in the law, knew the prophecy. They rattled it off easy. They knew what God had promised. But listen, it didn't lead them to a change. It didn't compel them to do something to change the trajectory of their life. We've often heard it expressed this way. I think it's helpful. Head knowledge is woefully insufficient for communion with God. Reminds us of a little parable that Jesus told in Matthew 7. You know, the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the one where Jesus talks about two men who both built houses. You remember that one? There's one guy, Jesus says, and he builds his house on the rock. Smart man. The the winds come and the rains come and the storm beats against that house. And because its foundation is sure, it stands firm. Another man, Jesus continues, who builds his house on the sand. Great location, by the way. Pretty compelling view. But the problem is, the rain comes and the wind blows and the gale beats against that house. And because it doesn't have a foundation that's firm and and true, it collapses. and, And great is the fall of it, Jesus says. So what's his point? Matthew 7. Two men. What's the difference between these two men? I've been around church a while. Maybe you have too. You know the answer we typically give to this? Jesus. Jesus is the difference. Of course Jesus is the difference. He's telling the parable. But if you read carefully, that's not the point he makes. The one who hears my words and does them, Jesus said, that's the one who builds his house on the rock. What's the only difference between the rock guy and the sand guy? The one who builds his house on the sand also hears Jesus' words. What? But he does not do them. He doesn't act on them. Boy, it's starting to sound real familiar here. These Pharisees are legit. Excuse me, I guess they're not particularly Pharisees here. They could have been, but they're chief priests. They're at the top of the ladder. They're the scribes. They're the experts in the law. Herod throws a question at them about Messiah. They're ready. They know it. They've got the fact. They believe it. But is that fact informing their doing? It's the difference, isn't it? Between the house on the rock and the house on the sand. So, maybe more acutely than the Herod phenomenon, some of us need to stop right now and ask the Lord, is this me? Can I be tempted at Christmas time 
In the season of Advent, as we're considering the import, the the beauty, the glory of God, very God, setting aside His his glory, His his riches, and humbling Himself, and putting on flesh, and being born in a manger, walking and living a life of humility and poverty, of obeying God at every, every turn in his life. Coming to die, and he knew it, so that you and I could have life. Is, is that like the Christmas tree that just goes up and you just sort of plug the thing in and forget about it? Or perhaps... By God's grace, he'll grant us fresh eyes to see, like Salem. Whoa, look at that thing. Look at all those lights and ornaments. How beautiful it is. This this Advent story, this Christmas truth, it's glorious. Christ has come. The bread of life from the house of bread May we not shrug as we sing through the familiar Christmas songs. That was the chief priests and the Pharisees. It didn't compel them enough to demand a serious response. Friendship Community Church, may that not be us. May we run hard after this Messiah. Live wholeheartedly for him this Christmas season. One more Group, one more contingency responding to this Christmas news. Some of your translations call them magi or magi, depending upon where you are in America and how you say it. That word magi is simply the plural form of the Greek word. It's, it's actually the, the, the real Greek here in the Bible. Some of your translations take that word and try to render it roughly into English. Maybe something like wise men. It's a relatively fair parallel. There's been a lot written about these guys. Who were they? Well, they were clearly in tune with astronomy, and they were, they were dialed in to the, the signs in the heavens. They were wise. They were loaded, right? They come bearing some pretty amazing gifts. The point of the story, though, is actually not to sate our curiosity about these mysterious, worshiping magi. We don't even know how many there are. Tradition says there's three, right? Some of you may have even been singing the song in your head, We Three Kings of Orient are. You're welcome. That'll be in your head for the rest of the day. (laughs) But the truth is the text is silent on the number. How do we get three? Well, we probably get three out of our, our, our tradition from the number of gifts that are given. And I know I showed you this last year, but it's just too good to pass up. Uh, there is one theologian, though, who uh, has r- written about uh, another fourth wise man who came. I'll, we'll show you the picture here. He was turned away because he brought fruitcake. <laughs> it's just so good. You gotta love Gary Larson. 
We don't know. The point is, we don't know how many wise men there were, how many magi. They bring these gifts, though, before the Lord. The point is not who exactly they were or how many there were. The point is what they're doing when they're confronted with the king of the Christmas story and his star. This star is fascinating, isn't it? Again, so much ink has been spilled about the star. And if you're one of those science types... Perhaps you've read up on this. There's a lot out there. What was this thing? What, what made it twinkle? Was it a planetary conjunction? People writing about how it meant. Perhaps it was Jupiter and Saturn and Mars and where they were lined up, and, and that produced this just amazing celestial phenomenon. Was it a comet, perhaps? A supernova? Was it like an angel? Or was it something else? This is really fun to think about, but, but again, it's not the point of the story. We shouldn't push these facts too hard. The Bible's silent on these because it wants you to worship the one it's pointing to. We do, we do know this about the star. It is undeniably, this, the activities, the actions of this celestial being or body, this is undeniably a miraculous act of God. Well, how do we know that? Just look what the thing is doing. Look at chapter, or verse 9, excuse me. Ma- Matthew 2, verse 9. Look at The star went before them. It's moving before them. And then it comes to rest directly over where the child was. Now, at the expense of playing Captain Obvious, I'll just say this. This is not typical star activity, right? It's not typically what stars do. Bethlehem, where Jesus is born, the house of bread, is only six miles south of Jerusalem. So we're talking not about like some thousands of miles of like minute movement. We're talking about very particular localized movement of a heavenly body directly over a micro space of six miles. It's moving and shows them exactly where to go and then it stops over the place where Jesus is. It's like twinkle, twinkle GPS. I mean, it's amazing. It's like an act of God. This star activity, whatever the star was made of, whatever the physiological makeup is, it's clear that this star is God's divine tool, his divine act or his miracle to point to his divine son. And then we get here at the end of the account, their response, right? Look at verse, look at verse 10. Their response is joy. They've looked at a lot of stars. Ain't no star behaved like this star. They're, they're bubbling over with joy. The response is effusive joy. Look at the re- repetition here in verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Right? It's, like the, it's like the Holy Spirit through Matthew is wanting to make sure that we don't get that the joy is just uncontainable. There's a big whole bunch of joy, a lot of joy, he's saying here, as they're seeing this star and and what God is doing. Now, what do they do when they come before this humble situation? 
Now, you can map out the timing. We're not going to get into how, exact, how old was Jesus when they came before him. Most experts guesstimate, you know, two years or less because of the time of Herod's edict later on. We don't know exactly know. But verse 11, going into the house, here's how they respond. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and what they do? They prostrated themselves. That's literally the word. The word for worship means here to prostrate yourself down flat. It's interesting when we use that word. What do we mean? To humbly bow. And that's what they did. They fell down and worshipped this child. It's amazing. The, the faithful response of Christmas is not my throne, Herod. Or, yeah, we know all about that, but it's not really going to change significantly what our, what our lives are or how we operate. That's the chief priests and the scribes. These magi humbly bow and worship. That's the point, of course. That's the point of Christmas. Now, um, a word about these gifts. This is kind of fun. Um, again, we don't, we don't know definitively, but some believe that these gifts have very specific meaning. That they're metaphors for, for Jesus' life and, and what he will become as the Messiah and the Savior. These, these certainly are, are gifts fit for royalty. Again, some suggest they're even symbolic. So take gold, for instance. Of course, the gold, a precious metal, the, the most precious metal, then as now, speaks of Jesus' kingship. It speaks to his royalty. He is indeed the king. Then we see frankincense, don't we? What's frankincense? Well, it's incense, right? It's in, there, in the word frankincense. Frank's incense, uh, probably not. But incense was one of the primary ingredients used for temple worship. And it was representative in Jewish worship of prayers as the, as the incense would rise up before the Lord. We see this imagery in the book of Revelation too, don't we? As the incense rises up before the altar, the throne of God, it represents pr the prayers of the saints. And the incense was, was burning as the priests would be interceding on behalf of the people. So, so frankincense perhaps speaks to Jesus' role, this newborn king, as our intercessor, as our mediator, as our high priest before the Lord. Gold, he's the king. Frankincense, he's our great high priest. He's our intercessor. And then we've got myrrh. Myrrh, again, a kingly spice, one used for burial, perhaps pointing to, perhaps foreshadowing ostensibly Jesus' death right from the moment of his birth. Now, whether, whether that's all there or whether we're squeezing too much out of that, I, I don't know, I'll let you go do that work, but um, what is very clear is that these are foreigners, right? They've made quite a quite a travel, quite a distance, perhaps from Iran or Babylonia, some speculate, 
I mean, this has been a a long, arduous journey. These are foreigners. Translation, these are Gentiles. They're probably pagans. And yet they're coming, bringing their wealth, bowing down at the feet of this king of kings. And this, Friendship Community Church, just gives us such a simple and beautiful picture of what this Advent season is supposed to do for us, I think. This gives us, again, a a microcosm of the whole story of Scripture, right? And what was this king supposed to do? Well, this king was supposed to sit on David's throne forever, and all of the Gentile nations, all those pagans, were supposed to be blessed through the seed of David, through the seed of Abraham, through the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, every tribe and people and tongue and nation will one day gather before this throne. And isn't that what's happening here? These these pagans are coming from, from afar. The people who are closest to it totally miss it. And God says, I'm going to take them from the ends of the earth. I'm going to bring them in before my son. I'll just remind you of the way this all wraps up in Revelation chapter 7. The Apostle John writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, getting a, a window into the heavenly realm. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and they're crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This, friends, is Advent. Some will respond today, just as then. Some will respond like Herod responded. No king of my life but me. No authority. You're going to tell me what to do. Some will respond as the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus, we we know all the facts about him, but he's, he's really not a big enough deal to demand a serious response from me. And then you see here these Gentiles gathering at Jesus' feet, saying, this one is worthy of my worship. It's a great reminder for us. What did Paul say in Philippians? To write, to to say the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. FCC, to hear the same Christmas truths again this season. It's no trouble to me. No trouble to Benjamin. No trouble to to us in leadership. And it is beautiful. It's safe for us as a people to be reminded of these glorious gospel truths. Christmas, as the Magi remind us, is about bowing. It's about prostrating our lives before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is what the faithful do at Christmas time. They come to adore him. And so on this Faith Sunday, the second Sunday of Advent, that's our simple declaration. 
We're singing to one another. We're stirring up one another by way of exhortation and reminder. Oh, come, all ye faithful. You're not faithful because you've managed your life right. You're not faithful because you've read your Bible enough or because you got baptized or because you did anything. You're faithful because Jesus is Lord. He died and has risen again. And if you put your faith and trust in him, the beckon, the call is, come, all ye faithful. And the, the chorus that echoes back is, oh, come, like the wise men did, like the magi, let us adore him. And so that's what we do, and that's how we'll end. I'm going to invite Ruthann up to, to lead us in that uh, Christmas hymn one more time, and let's, uh, let's pray as we prepare our hearts to declare it. Father, we need your help. God, we know that in our stubbornness, in our hardness of heart, Lord, we have coasted through not just this season, but our lives. And we failed to see you as you are, Jesus, the King of all kings, worthy of all worship, before whom every knee will bow and tongue confess. Christ, you're the Lord. And we pray now that we would remember, that we would remember well those of us who have, who have walked with you and been walking with you, God, would you dust off the cobwebs from our souls and would you help us to sing this song now with everything in us. We've come, Christ, to adore you, to worship you. Now, by the power of your spirit, would you make this worship in spirit and in truth? Be pleased, Lord, with this sacrifice of praise that we bring before you now. Guard us from clinging to our own authority. Guard us from shrugging off the, the import of your kingship, Lord, and help us to live lives in whole surrender to your lordship. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand.